BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Before we got kicked out of school, my grades was top notch. After this, I try to keep my grades up, but my grades fail dramatically, and I'm just trying to keep it up there where I can graduate this year. More than one year into the pandemic, you've probably heard the individual stories. I felt like there was nothing I could do, and there was nothing I could like hold on to to like get my grades back or just at least feel stable in school. I had to relearn chemistry to help get her through a, uh, an honors chemistry class. But was anyone putting the pieces together to look at the big picture? I was in and out of psychiatric hospitals because of my mental health. She started literally slipping through the cracks. Public records, dozens of interviews, chasing down public leaders. Look, I'm, I'm nine months pregnant. This isn't my idea of a good time nope, either, but we're trying to time. get some answers for families here. We knew this was bigger than one story. So Fox 6 took on a massive project to answer the question, through pandemic learning, how are students really doing? I don't want to paint an overly rosy picture of this. Everyone knows we have our work cut out for us. Fox 6 Studios, this is Open Record. I'm Amanda St. Hilaire, and we are recording this episode on April 22nd. Brian Polson is not here today, but I am here with two excellent human beings. Executive producer Sarah Smith. Hey, Sarah. Hi, ladies. And Contact 6 investigator Jenna Sachs. Hi, Jenna. Hi. So today we're talking about schools, and Jenna, Sarah, you both have kids. Sarah, I know yours are more school-aged. So what has that situation been like for you over the last year? Well, I can say that when schools shut down uh, in March 2020, it was kind of like a free-for-all, it felt like. My kids are in second grade and 4K. So they're not, you know, they're not quite at that age where I was super stressed about their learning and development. Um, because we were able to do stuff at home, but it was certainly like random Zooms. And that was when like Zoom was still new and did the different platforms that the school was using. We were still confused. There were so many apps where you had to upload homework and do videos and stuff like that. So it was kind of sloppy. Um, but thankfully they were able to go back in person um, in September and they've been in person ever since uh, and have done really well. So their pods are small classroom sizes, and they have been able to stay in school for most of the year. A couple times shut down here and there, but nothing more than a, the usual quarantine. So overall, it's not have been a super terrible experience. And Jenna, your kids are younger, but your oldest is now, you know, that 4K age. Yeah, we've been fortunate. She's in 4K, but she goes to a daycare center that provides it full time. So she's been able to go to school this whole time. But like Sarah said, 4K isn't a grade that you stress over too much. It's not like she's bringing me her calculus homework and I have to help her with that. Those are the families that I really feel for, the ones whose kids are in late middle school, high school, and they're getting into that stuff that their parents might not be able to help them with anymore or they don't remember. And 
I, I just feel fortunate that if this is going to happen, this kind of pandemic, it happened when my kids were younger and we could adapt to it. And hopefully it doesn't come back when they're older. But if it does, hopefully, you know, we've learned something this time around from everything that happened. Uh, because there was no really preparing for this, Amanda. I thought about that when I was watching your stories. These school districts, they didn't know this was coming. Educators love to prepare. They love to have plans in place. And this happened overnight and they had to adapt. So I think it's really interesting looking at the impacts of that, you know, the school districts doing what they can, but also those students thrust in that situation and their families. Yeah, and so our focus of this project really ended up being for the most part, high school and some part middle school, depending on the data that the school districts provided, kind of for the reasons you both just mentioned, right? When you, your kids are in elementary school, there's part of you that goes, okay, there's some time, right? Like if they fall behind this year, it's not as much pressure to make it up. But especially in high school, because of your proximity to the next step, whether that's college or whatever your your post high school plans are, you're much closer to that. And so there's a much greater sense of urgency around any learning that might be lost. So as the headlines started to come out, this really started actually with parent groups who had filed their own open records requests, which you know that's the way to my heart is through public records. And you started to see the headlines pop up about, oh, this school district has X percent of students failing one or more classes in the fall, or this school district saw GPA take a hit. And so you had all of those smaller pieces. But as we were talking, you know, we were going, well, what's the bigger picture? Are the schools that were virtual, you know, all fall semester, were they worse off than the students that, you know, had been able to come back in person, whether that was through hybrid learning or full-time in-person instruction, you know, what did this look like across the board? And so, you know, Sarah, that's when you and I kind of started talking about how do we do this? How do we get this data? And, and where do we go from here? So that was one of the things. So we knew that parents you know, in some school districts were filing their own open records requests. So then, you know, for you, when it came time for us to want to get this information, you know, were you calling parents and going, hey, did you get it yet? Can I have it? Or what were you doing? So I think the big thing was being consistent, right? So we wanted different parents were asking for different things, for different schools, for different grades. So we wanted a clear methodology. So that's why we chose the 10 largest school districts in our region, in that Southeast Wisconsin region. Um, because if you're comparing random school districts, that doesn't tell you a whole lot. But what are the 10 biggest ones doing? And then we wanted to request the same data. Now, what we got was not consistent across the board because different school districts track this in different ways. So some school districts only track um, GPA for high school students, and they have a different system for middle school um, or same with class failures. So some school districts would give us junior high and high school. Some would give us just high school. Some districts gave us quarter by quarter grades, some by semester, some by school year. But we made the same request to each school district. Um, and the two things we really focused on were average student GPA um, from the 18-19 school year 
through present because we wanted to see pre-pandemic when the pandemic hit and then after things had, quote, settled in a little bit, although you can argue that things didn't really settle in for some students. Um, and so that was really, so the average GPA and then percentage of students failing one or more classes. Those were the two things we honed in on. What did that data show? I know you pile, you went through piles and piles of data. No one does it better than you going through all <laughs> of this paperwork. But what was your takeaway when you finally sat down and were able to compare the best you could? If someone said, you know, what is the state of our, our grades and pass fail rates? What would you tell them? That was the hard thing was because a lot of times you can look at this data and walk away with kind of a thesis, right? So, oh, wow, the ones that took the hit were the ones who stayed virtual all fall. And that's not what happened here. We did notice across the board in different ways, all school districts experienced some sort of decline in their grades between before the pandemic and then that first semester of the fall 2020-21 school year. That was consistent. It was interesting that that was consistent, though, because it was across learning models. So the districts that stayed virtual for that whole first semester of this school year, you know, they saw their grades took a hit, but so did the ones that offered fully in-person options early on. Um, so did the ones that offered hybrid. And we talked to some researchers about this because we wanted to make sure we were looking at this in the right way. And they did caution between making comparisons between school districts because as we found out, they all grade in different ways to begin with, which if you're a parent, you know, even in the same school district, you can have two teachers who teach the exact same class and their grading is going to be different. But then when the pandemic hit, they all took different grading strategies. So we couldn't walk away and say, this school district was hit the hardest because we don't know how much students lost in terms of academic knowledge. Grades are an imperfect measure, but right now it's what we've got. Um, what we did notice though was for many districts, GPA improved during that first semester the pandemic hit. That's when you would expect it to drop. Right. That's when the height of the confusion, everyone's getting sent home. Uh, technology isn't working. No one really knows what Zoom is yet. You think, OK, that's when grades are going to drop. But that's when we saw very few students failing one or more classes. That's when we saw GPA improve. And it's because several school districts during that time either, quote, froze grades. So they basically said, if you're turning in the work, your grade's not going to get any worse than it was before buildings closed on March 13th. However, there were some school districts that said, we're going to go pass fail, or we're going to give you the option. You can keep earning a letter grade, or you can go pass fail. Um, or in the case of Sheboygan Area School District, you can earn basically a U, which means unknown, and then we can go back and fill that in later. Uh, and in some cases, in Kenosha Unified School District, they said, okay, if you're going to keep participating, we're going to try and hold on to our grading system. Um, but that really varied from teacher to teacher. They didn't have a set policy on that. But if you don't participate, we're not going to penalize you. And the idea there was uh, equity issues, right? You had some students who had spotty internet service and they couldn't send stuff in. 
you had some students who had a, a lot of things going on at home and didn't have the right environment for learning. And so they said, especially for high school, knowing that students rely on things like GPA for scholarships and other opportunities, they didn't want to penalize students, but then you run into the issue of are students getting grades that don't reflect their knowledge? So you have some students who went six months with no formal education, and then fall of this year hits, you're back in school, the grading standards have gone back to normal, you're expected to be a student again, you're getting more work to catch you up, and that's when we saw grades take a hit. That's when we saw percentage of students failing one or more classes really skyrocket. So we have the data, you look at the data, you start to compare, and then the next logical step, which is what we love to do, we reach out to the school districts, right? Because you want to hear, you know, how do they kind of defend the data? What do they want to talk about challenges, successes? So then your next step, right, was to reach out to these school districts. What happened? <laughs> Sarah, you, people can't see this because it's audio, but Sarah has a big smile on her face for a reason. Because this was a part of the process that I should have known would be more difficult than you'd think it would be. Uh, there were some school districts who responded right away and wanted to talk because they said, we want to give you context. You know, uh, and so five of them right away said, yeah, we'll talk. Kenosha Unified School District spent an hour going through their data with us. They gave us more data than we requested. Um, and at the end of the interview, uh, there, it's their chief information officer, Chris Keckler. He said, I'd rather spend this time and have you get it right and, you know, feel like we were able to explain everything. And not all districts took that approach. Uh, and, you know, on a day-to-day, -day, when you're doing day-to-day -day reporting, you have maybe like a five-hour window where someone needs to be available to talk to you. And that's not always going to happen because it's short notice. And so people will send you a statement usually that says not much of anything. And you're like, okay, that's fine. For a bigger project like this, a lot of the districts had several weeks. Like we gave them a wide window to do an in-person interview or a Zoom interview. Most, most chose Zoom. Um, and part of that is these are public leaders who are making decisions about your kids. And so even though, yeah, they're, they're busy running their school districts, part of the job is communicating that with the parents. And some superintendents kind of took the position of, well, I presented this information to the school board. It's like, well, yeah, but that was a four-hour meeting that most parents aren't going to sit through and be able to easily digest. Part of that communication is us being able to distill it and giving that to parents. So that's, that's why we were so adamant about getting interviews with, with all the districts. So Oak Creek Franklin, Oconomowoc, and Sheboygan originally declined our interview requests. And, and we asked repeatedly. And I basically kind of spelled it out for them where I said, look, I can show up at your board meeting and, and catch you on the spot. And maybe that's what you prefer. Maybe that's a more convenient time for you but I'd rather set up a mutually agreed upon interview time so that we're both prepared. Didn't hear back from them on that. So I went to those board meetings and to those superintendents credit, you know, when we showed up at the board meetings, they said, okay, we'll talk to you. And they did. And they went through and they explained their data. 
MPS took a, a very long time to send us their data. Uh, we requested it in January. Uh, we followed up with them several times. It was basically one sheet of paper. It took them till April 1st to get it, even though the document they sent us says the data was collected in February. And they did not have a school board meeting in between the time we got the data and when we were going to take this to air. Um, I, I asked for an interview repeatedly. No one from the district responded. But their superintendent did do a press conference about another topic, about opening up buildings. So we were able to squeeze a few questions into that press conference. It wasn't quite as detailed as some of our other interviews were. So that's why through this series, you don't hear a lot of detailed plans from MPS because we were able to squeeze in three questions during what ended up being like a 15 or 20 minute press conference. And then there's Wabatosa. So Wabatosa School District um, pretty much declined an interview right away, didn't say why. Um, and this is where, you know, it's like I'm, I, I try to be, I, I heard a reporter once say, you know, be uh, relentless but fair. And that's kind of the, the process that I tried to follow through this. So I kept asking why. I explained why it was important to have someone on camera answering questions. They stopped responding. So I sent an email to their whole school board because the way this works is the superintendent is the one running the school, but the superintendent reports to the school board. And the school board is, those are the people you elect, those are the people voting on in-person or hybrid learning, and, and the decision is informed by the superintendent's advice, but those are the people with the ultimate decision. So I emailed the school board and said, hey, do any of you wanna talk about this? The board president responded just saying something generic about how they were working hard. And I explained, OK, but here here are the questions I have. Here are the things I want to do an interview about. And again, spelled it out. I can show up at a board meeting, but I'd rather just everyone be prepared for an interview. No response. So we showed up at a board meeting and we caught up with the school board president, Eric Jessup Anger. And he wouldn't answer any questions. He kept saying he hadn't seen the data that we were referencing, even though we had kind of spelled out, you know, what the data was. And he just wouldn't, he wouldn't talk. And so that's what you saw reflected in our coverage. We think it's important to show people those interactions because you deserve to know how forthcoming your school district was. Um, and even the next day after that interaction, the school district spokesperson emailed me and uh, said that no one would be doing an on-camera interview. Actually, they said, you can talk to someone, but you have to provide all your questions 24 hours in advance, and you cannot record the interview. And in journalism, that's a big problem. Uh, we don't provide specific questions in advance because then that basically is a fake interview, right? It's like a scripted back and forth. Uh, it also, especially in TV, we don't email questions for something like this because email in general is just a, a terrible way to do an interview because you can't hold someone accountable for answering those questions. You don't know exactly who's answering the questions and then you can't follow up in real time to get clarification. Uh, and so we did not agree to those terms and especially because every other school district we had on the record about this. Um, we thought they should be on the record, which means there really shouldn't be a problem if they're confident in the answers they're giving us, there shouldn't be a problem with recording the interview. 
and they would not agree to put anyone on camera to answer questions in real time and basically take accountability for the answers they were giving us. So Wauwatosa is the only one where we, we don't know their plans to help students catch up. Um, you know, they referred us to a board meeting that's going to happen in May. Um, they're the only ones where we don't really have explanations for their data. For example, their data shows that when the pandemic hit in that spring semester of 2020, of all their students in their in their middle school and high school buildings, only one failed any class at all. So obviously that leads to questions about their grading. And then they saw a large increase in percentage of students failing one or more classes from before the pandemic to after the pandemic. It went from 9% to almost 18%. So we would have loved to get that context. Uh, but, you know, the reason we're so aggressive about pursuing these on-camera interviews is because these are the people who answer to you, the taxpayer, and part of their job is communicating that, and part of my job is holding them accountable when they don't. And, you know, Amanda, watching you do that in the story is just as interesting as watching <laughs> the data that you obtained, you know, watching you eight months pregnant, eight and a half months pregnant, trying to track down these people. I know it wasn't easy for you physically, and it's not like you enjoy doing it either. You're just trying to do your job and you're trying to give them the opportunity to explain the information that you have. If I'm a parent though, I'm thinking about my kid moving forward. You know, are they going to have enough knowledge in a certain subject area to move forward to the next course? Are they going to be able to have good grades in the future if they don't have, you know, that information in their in their heads? I think about how much knowledge kids can lose over the summer months. And now we've had all this virtual learning. You were describing in your stories about how some students weren't required to do their coursework um, for various reasons. That probably led to a lot of students not doing that work. Um, what's the plan for a lot of these districts going forward to try to combat that loss of knowledge or missed time? I, I don't know how you want to describe it. What's the plan moving forward for helping these students to succeed moving forward? Yeah, so different school districts have different terms for it. Some call it learning loss, some call it disrupted instruction, but whatever that term is, we know that students have lost some of their academic knowledge or do not are behind in, in some senses. So pretty much every school district that talked to us, all nine mentioned all nine of them mentioned summer school. And that's something that makes a lot of parents cringe when I talk to them. As part of this, we put together a parent panel and uh, no one seemed super thrilled about the idea of summer school. One parent said, our kids need a break. Like even though we know they're behind, they're mentally, physically, emotionally exhausted, uh, as many adults are from a, a year of pandemic learning. And so it's caused some school districts to really think about how they revamp their summer school. So the one that stood out to me was West Dallas, West Milwaukee. Their data was super interesting because it showed that more students were failing one or more classes after the pandemic as opposed to before the pandemic. But their GPA went up. Their GPA improved. When I asked them why that was, basically the theory is that students, when left to their own devices on virtual, they spend a lot of time on the classes they're really passionate about and less time on the classes maybe they don't enjoy. So maybe your grade in English 
went up and that boosted your GPA, but your grade in math went down. And that made it so that, you know, before you would have had a D and now you have an F, so you're failing a class, but your overall GPA actually hasn't taken a dip because of those other classes your, your grades have gone up in. So they've shifted their summer school more to a project-based learning model. And I hope this is something our station follows up on because I think these would be cool stories this summer. Um, so they're going to teach math and science, for example, through things students are passionate about, like beekeeping or baking. And then that way they're still connecting with peers. They're still getting that interaction. They're still doing something they enjoy. So to kind of mimic the the option of choosing things you're passionate about that they had with virtual. But now it's the hands-on experience that maybe they were missing out on. And it, it can feel more like a mental break. And other school districts are, are trying to bring back, you know, some of those interactive things. Um, Racine Unified School District talked about things like improv classes and um, bringing back art and music and sports that Waukesha talked about that, Sheboygan talked about that, um, because those are a lot of the things that students missed over the last year. So maybe they don't mind taking that math class as much if they can also show up and, you know, do a phys ed class they really like or you know, actually be part of, you know, some kind of musical endeavor again. So that seems to be one of the strategies. Um, But pretty much every district is trying to have an in-person option. Um, It may look different. They may have smaller groups. They may be more spread out. Um, But they're really trying to, to push that. MPS is adjusting their hours so that they can attract more of those high school students who work. And so they're trying to give more flexibility in terms of when you can come to summer school instead of, you know, just having this one session from this time to that time. Because a lot more students picked up jobs during virtual learning because they had the opportunity. And so, you know, they're trying to attract those students. MPS says usually they have about 7,000 students in, in summer school and they, they want to triple that. And we'll see if they can do that. Um, But going into the fall, it's not just about summer school. Going into the fall, parents, you'll probably notice more assessments of your students. In some cases, within the first few weeks of school, and even as low as elementary school, um, because elementary school, it's actually harder to measure what they know because you don't have always your traditional grading system. Um, And so they said the first step is figuring out what do the students actually know because we know that grades don't always reflect that. And then it's once they have that, they can have a a more specific plan. But the idea is to weave in review of the old material in with the new material, which is really challenging for teachers um, because you can't get caught up in teaching all the old stuff, but you can't just move forward with the new stuff when you might have a class, you might have an Algebra 2 class where the half the kids in there didn't master Algebra 1. And so how do you make it so that the kids who did master Algebra 1 aren't bored and they still get their grade level learning and the kids who didn't master it can get that Algebra 1 but also be learning Algebra 2 and be on track for the end of the school year. So that's something they're looking at. They're looking at increasing mental health resources. That was a big thing pretty much every You mentioned that in your about. report. Yeah, the mental health impact on these kids. Yeah. That seemed like it must be taking a toll on them. 
quite a bit. And it's hard, you know, that's a lot harder to measure than grades, right? Especially because students who have not had the same everyday access to in-person resources at school may not know exactly how to reach out for help. So part of this project, we put together a student panel. Uh, We went through the parents first. We got the parents' permission. Um, But a a student panel, and it it ended up being all high school girls, so two freshmen, two sophomores, and a senior. And they were really candid with it. We asked them a lot of questions about pandemic learning, but the underlying theme of the entire conversation kind of accidentally ended up being mental health because that's what they were experiencing. So for some of them, it was really high anxiety. You know, there was one student on there, Allison, who... I personally related to her so much because I felt like this was a young Amanda speaking to me. This is someone who was like really focused on her grades, high standards for her grades, and her grades started to slip. Um, You know, the previous semester, she had not absorbed a lot of information. She's a Waukesha student. That's one of the districts that basically said your grade's not going to get any worse. Her motivation really plummeted during virtual even when she went back to hybrid in the fall, all of a sudden now things are more rigorous. You haven't mastered the previous material. She saw her grades slipping. That increased her anxiety, which then hurt her grades more. So it was like this this spiral for her. And she said she didn't know how to feel stable at school. She said too, the one thing that I think about it, like ever since I saw your story was that she said that, okay, so I'm feeling anxious about my bad grades or, you know, my slipping grades. So how can I fix that? Oh, do my schoolwork and do well at it, but I don't understand it. So how am I supposed to, like you said, it's just that, you know, that wheel that goes around and she wasn't ever able to kind of get back to caught up to getting those grades back up. Yeah. And she is someone who... You know, and she even said, even, you know, when my grades are back up, I'm still going to be experiencing this anxiety, right? So then some of the other students, uh, there was one student named Isabella who said, my grades didn't take a hit, but my mental, it took a toll on my mental health because it was harder to keep my grades up. There was more, I had to put a lot more mental and emotional energy into it. Um, One student, Abby, talked about how she was actually in and out of psychiatric care. Um, And she, she said she had you know, struggled with mental health a little bit before the pandemic, but really during the pandemic, it took a dive. She said she was in her own thoughts all the time, especially being virtual for most of it. She didn't have her typical outlets and her interaction with other students, and she she didn't really know where to get help. And then there was another student, Haley, who was very open and adamant about being open about the fact that she's in therapy. And I admire all of these young women were really, to them, it was really important to talk about this and be open about this because they said they want other students to know that they're not alone and they don't want there to be a stigma around getting help. So that really stayed with me that they had the maturity to think that way. Again, some of these are freshmen in high school. And they're saying we we want to be able to help our peers by talking about this. But in that same breath, though, they're also wanting to hold their schools accountable and their administrators. Like, you know, I think one of the things that I took away as well was that, you know, they don't want to be talked to they or talked about. They want to be talked to. And they the students that I think that you found 
have said, like, if, if the districts and the schools are making it difficult or they're saying, hey, just click on this link or not making it accessible, like then the students aren't going to always reach out and go, yeah, I need help. They need someone to go. What can I do for you specifically you, you know, that we can help increase, you know, your mental health. And one of the other students even talked about how surveys went out, but none of the students clicked on them because it talked about a temperature check. And so the, the, the student was like, I thought they were talking about, oh, 98.7 degrees. I'm perfectly healthy. No, that's not how you talk to students. Temperature check, that's what I would think too. Yeah, well, and I think it goes to show, and look, the school districts, to their credit, they're trying. They all mentioned it as a priority. They're all trying to budget more resources for it. And some school districts are doing, you know, they've done town halls with students and things like that. I think the issue is, as adults, the way we communicate and what works for us doesn't always work for students. And that's the feedback I got from these students. So even in a town hall, if you have 40 other kids there, you know, some students might feel very comfortable in that setting, but some students are not going to feel comfortable. I actually think the reason our student panel was so open is because, including myself, there were six of us on that call. We're all female. They were all hearing their own experiences reflected back at them from other kids their age in different districts, but who were going through similar feelings. And so for them, that was a comfortable setting. But yeah, they were saying, if you provide resources, even if you advertise the resources, but it's hey, go to the office if you need help, or fill out this survey to tell us how you're doing. That still puts the onus on the students to reach out. And some students aren't comfortable reaching out. Um, some don't even know the extent to which they're struggling, right? Like they know they're not motivated, but when you're 15, you're not sitting there going, I think I have some undiagnosed mental health issues, right? Like. You know your behavior is changing, but you don't always know why. A lot of times it's easy for adults to write certain things off as typical teenage behavior, whether it's a mood change or suddenly your kid doesn't want to get out of bed anymore. You know, those are things that I think can be really easy to overlook. And so the students were saying that that direct contact reaching out to them is a lot more effective then, you know, sending out a survey saying, here's a temperature check, which is lingo that, you know, in the corporate world might work well, but it's with students, then you have that, that miscommunication. The issue, though, is to do that individualized reaching out. Who's going to do that? Well, usually that falls on the shoulders of teachers. I was going to ask you about that, Amanda, because I think that's a big part of this, too. It has not been easy on the teachers. I'm sure we all have friends who we've spoken to over the last year who are teachers who have just been so overwhelmed and they're working so hard and they're stressed, too. Yeah, I mean, the the teacher and parents are worried about teachers burning out. That's when I did my parent panel, multiple parents said, like, I love my child's teachers and I'm worried that they're going to burn out. And so we we talked to a Waukesha South teacher and she basically said avoiding burnout has been impossible. Um, and she was very, very positive about the support she's getting and going into the next school year. But she also walked us through the realities. So through virtual learning, your students are able to access you at any time now, right? Like the school day isn't over at 3 p.m. 
if you could have a student messaging you at 8 p.m. needing help, and of course you're going to help them, right? Or at, you know, 6 a.m. needing help, and of course you're going to help them. And she wasn't complaining about that access, but it's something that made the job more difficult because your day is just extended. And then you go into a hybrid model, or even if you're fully in person, but students have the choice of staying virtual, you have a class where half the people are in, half the kids are in front of you physically, half are behind screens. You're trying to get them to interact with each other. They're frustrated, the students are frustrated because they can't hear. It's easier and faster to respond to the in-person students so then the virtual students feel like they're not getting help. And then, oh, by the way, on top of that, not only do you have to keep teaching the grade level material, you have to catch them up on everything that they missed. And now with increased mental health issues, you have to be monitoring a lot more, which they were already doing before the pandemic, but now it's like that additional heightened sense. So at what point does all of that become not sustainable? And that's why I'm glad when we had reached out to each individual district, we had requested to speak to not only an administrator, but a teacher. And the only one that got back to us and connected us with the teacher was Waukesha. And I'm glad they did because I think that that's an important perspective for families to understand as well. Parents are struggling. Students are struggling. Teachers are struggling. And so the challenge with the school districts is figuring out with all these things we want to do that we think are important, that we need to not only promise to families, but deliver to them to help these students. And also knowing that resources are not unending. How do we do this in a way where we can actually deliver on that and we don't have all these teachers burning out and we don't have a massive turnover rate? Um, Because that, at the end of the day, doesn't help anyone either. All right, so this is the part of the podcast where we go off the record. We're getting a little more personal, having a little fun by answering a question we have not prepared for. So Sarah, usually this is the part where you join the podcast, but you are already on it to give us the question. I sure am. Um, Okay, so uh, funny enough, and it's like I planned this, but I didn't. Um, This was a question I had held from like a couple weeks ago, and and now it's actually very pertinent. Tell me three things, two if you can't remember three, three things you remember about kindergarten. I feel like it's such a time that I remember Ooh. stuff and, and, and I actually, I was able to, I mean, there's lots of things like finger painting and eating raw rice and stuff, but anyway, um, <laughs> That's very so, you know, like those sensory tables, yeah. anyway, I digress. Um, so I, while you guys do want to think and I can, cause yeah, I have you, mine. You answer so, first. Okay. Great. Um, okay. So I can tell you that Billy Bojar got his finger caught in, a, <laughs> in one of those metal doors, his middle finger. And he had a little stub. He lost like his whole nail and part of the tip of his finger. And we went to grade school together after that. And I still remember that poor little middle finger got ah, kablamo slammed in the door. <laughs> so Billy Bojar's middle f- fingertip, RIP. Then I remember that they would deliver milk in a big crate, like those cartons of milk, and they'd pull it around in a wagon. And I still remember like that squeaky wheel of that sound, you know, the wagon getting pulled and getting that milk. And oh, some days it was chocolate and it was so good. Um, and I remember that my kindergarten friend, Stephanie, 
and when it came to school time, she came in late, I think, to the class, but she had this cat backpack that was almost like a duffel bag, but the cat head, the end of it opened up. That was like the part where you put your stuff in there. And she had these high-heeled winter boots that like went to her knee. Oh, man. I was like, Steph is styling in kindergarten. Um, funny enough, Steph and I are still very, very good friends. We're very close. <laughs> so she's like my oldest friend, like longest term. But anyway... Those are things I still think about, even though it was like (laughs) years ago, you know. So anyway, your turn. I remember uh, having to learn to hold like a a pencil or a crayon the right way with those, you know, those little grippy things where there are like indentations where your fingers go. Um, I remember really struggling with that. Um, Also, this is kind of like like 1A and 1B. But also just with a last name like St. Hilaire, that was very difficult <laughs> to learn how to uh, write and spell correctly. So that was fun. Um, this isn't, I mean, I guess she was my best friend in kindergarten, but these memories are outside of kindergarten. My neighbor, Jessica Ambrose, had the coolest toys and she had a Barbie Jeep. And I oh, wanted... That is a very cool toy. I wanted a Barbie Jeep so so bad my parents were like and I had a bunch of brothers so they were like you're the only one who's going to use it we're not getting a Barbie Jeep so like well that was a big gift that's a big it is and so being able to like ride in her Barbie Jeep I just felt like the coolest kid on the block and actually like where we live now there's one of the little neighbor girls has a Barbie Jeep and my husband looked at me and he was like, you, you want a Barbie Jeep, don't you? He was like, I, I guarantee you, you're going to end up getting our kids a Barbie Jeep. I was like, probably. Um, so that was a kindergarten memory. And then I remember the prayer we would say before lunch. And I don't know, this is like seared in my memory, but it was, God, we thank you for this food, for rest and home and all things good, for wind and rain and sun above, but most of all, for those we love. And there were like little hand motions that went with it. Mm-hmm. Um, so that will that will forever be be etched in my brain. You know, you mentioned things that are seared into your brain. And in my kindergarten class, we would start every day by singing the names of the kids in the class. Maybe it was an attendance thing, but we sang everybody's name to the tune of Yankee Doodle. <laughs> and I I still remember it was like, Betsy Anderson, Jeff Bending, Annie Brady, Brian Burke, and Christy Colford, Rachel Dusich. And that's where it cuts off. But like, I, rem- I those are kids I kept going to school with through high school. So it's so funny. I remember who was in my kindergarten class because of that song because of Yankee that Doodle. we sang. And I remember also feeling like really independent, walking in the front door of the school and turning to the right and walking by myself to my kindergarten room. Um... I remember that being a cool feeling, like I was grown up. And then my teacher, Mrs. Johnson, who my sister had had and my brother would have, and she was special to us because my mom did daycare for her son, so it was like a, a special connection. And uh, yeah, she was, she was a really good teacher, and I was lucky to have her, but it's, it's just funny. I mean, she taught me how to read, too, I'm sure, but I remember that song more than I remember <laughs> learning the letters. Isn't it funny what sticks with you? I just laugh that like I can't remember what happened yesterday or what day it was, but I can like you said I can recall those certain things that are just like 
oh my gosh, like I, you just don't forget them. And for whatever reason, they stick in that little special part of your brain. And like, what a cool thing, you know? That was a good question, Sarah. If you have a question you want to submit for our off the record segment, or you just want to suggest a topic we should discuss in general, an issue we should investigate, please send us an email. Send your emails to fox6investigators at fox.com. That's fox, the number six investigators at fox.com. Sarah, Jenna, always a delight to talk to you and see your faces. You too. Thanks. Hey, Amanda, good yeah. luck with that baby. <laughs> this, <laughs> Yeah, that too. Is this your last podcast for a while or do you have one more? Um, Hopefully I have one more. So we are like a week and a half from my due date. So if all goes well at the beginning of next week, Brian and I will record an episode, fingers crossed, and then that would be my last one for a while. But we'll see. I don't know. Maybe I'll get bored. Maybe I'll jump on and we'll talk about <laughs> if you're ever recording at two o'clock in the morning when I'll be awake with a baby, you know, I'll call in. It'll be great. As always, thank you to the people who make this podcast possible. Producer Pete, Dave Machuda, Suzanne Barthel, and of course, Sarah Smith. Please subscribe to Open Record if you haven't done that already. You can find it wherever you do your podcast listening. With that, I'm Amanda St. Hilaire, and we will be back next week. <laughs>